Welcome to the podcast, History, Politics, and Beer, the podcast that examines contemporary issues through the lens of history. Now, from the home office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, here are your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another edition of History, Politics, and Beer. I am one of your hosts, Matt Shockey. Sitting across from me, as always, is Jeff Hudson. And before we get started, we're going to put the beer into History, Politics, and Beer. And a little bit different this time, we have two things to offer you. First, uh, Jeff, you and I went out to eat before we did this. We did. We were hungry. We were hungry. So we went to a little rest, uh, local bar. And I enjoyed – this is a lo- very local brew uh, if you're not from the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, and it's a very limited run. Uh, it was a Yingling chocolate stout. And I'm telling you what. Is that Hershey chocolate Hershey's. Thing? It was her- her- between Yingling and Hershey to all Pennsylvania companies. Um if you have never had this, I suggest you drop what you're doing now, get into a car, and drive until you find Yingling's Hershey Stout. It is phenomenal. Um, I it it's chocolatey. It's like a dessert beer. It has the beer taste and the chocolate taste all coming together. I've had chocolate stouts before. And the chocolate seems to be a little bit more of a hidden flavor behind the beer. This one, they sort of reversed it and put the, put the little Hershey's flavor in, sort of in front of the beer taste. Oh, I almost reminds me of they used to remember we used to do fountain drinks. Oh, yeah. Maybe you're yeah. not where you would you know you could you could get chocolate cokes. You think you could get a coke and then they would have chocolate syrup and you could yeah. put that in there. It almost reminds me of like like a, a beer. With some Hershey syrup in it. Yeah. And I always like, I mean, Hershey syrup makes great chocolate milk, kind of, but that's kind of what it reminded me yeah, of because I had a little taste of that too. It was really good. So I get that. That's the best beer I've had. A plus. I love the Yingling Hershey style. So what, what, what did you? Partake of well, you know, I'm I, I had an IPA, IPA. Yeah, Jeez, you're a boring date. <laughs> I, had, I had a Goose Island IPA, but the thing I would, I think that's a solid IPA. But the thing about it is, you know, wine taster just would say the nose, like the fragrance. I don't know if I smelled too many IPAs that have a more fragrant hop smell. Now you even like the hop smell, it, yeah? It's, you know, hops are kind of like tobacco to me. Like you know, so I go into an old tobacco shop. Oh, it smells good. God, that smells so good. Yeah. Now, of course, I think it tastes like crap. Right. Um, and hops are sort of the same way. Wow. It has a really great smell to it. Yeah. But it just is not tickling my palate. Yeah. No. I and so I, I like that. But now we're drinking something else. Yeah. Now, it's wintertime. We drink more in the wintertime, and we're having something I never had before. It's a Fireball Cinnamon Whiskey here. So you've had this before. I've right? had Fireball Cinnamon Whiskey. This is this is really not top shelf stuff. No. This is yeah. But it's it does have a nice burn to it. You can smell it. It really it almost smells like big red gum. If you if you if you know it does <laughs> smell like big rig. Let's see what it tastes like. Does it taste like big rig tum? Kind of tastes like big red gum. It is good, isn't it? Yeah. To me, it's surprisingly good. It's a little on the sweet side, right? Um, because this is not something you want to drink a lot. Of. Oh no, no, no. Yes, sick. And this, you know, when you're if you're having the pope over for dinner, you don't want to break out the, the fireball <laughs> for him, you know. But 
it is a nice warming feeling to have some in the, during the winter time. Um, again, that nice, I like that cinnamon little punch in there. Ah, it's good. All it's, right. It's good. All right. So today's show, Jeff, we're going to do a little bit of an update on what's happening in impeachment land. Uh, I think they're going to be start selling tickets to that amusement park soon. <laughs> and then uh, we're going to do some secrets of the Constitution, some things that are hidden in the Constitution that you may not be aware of, and also some things that maybe could have been added but really weren't. So we're going to try to undo a find few Two mysteries of the Constitution. Exactly. And Nicolas Cage will be showing up later on for all that. I don't know if we'll get through all of them today, so it might be a two-part pod. But let's start with the impeachment of uh, the inquiry uh, of our president, Donald Trump. And I'm going to make a statement, then you can sort of take off on this. Um, and I think I said this in one of the la- other podcasts, 100% he's impeached. I, I, I see no way that Nancy Pelosi, the political strategist that she is, the years of experience she has, and regardless of whether you like Nancy Pelosi or not, uh, she is a very good politician. She's nobody's fool. No. She would not have started this journey without knowing how, uh, what the outcome was going to be. It almost reminds me when they say like a, when a lawyer is questioning someone on the stand, don't ask a question where you already don't, you don't know the answer to. Right. Uh, and I think that's what's happening here. She knows she has the votes. She is just trying to cross all the T's, dot all the I's. So when it comes to a vote, it's, it's uh, airtight. That's my opinion. Right. And she, she held off for having an impeachment yes, long inquiry. Time. And she knew that uh, there's a potential political backlash as there still is. Uh, with this. But what happened uh, is that, you know, Trump made this phone call that uh, he released a transcript of. President Zelensky, I think is the guy's yeah, name. Yeah, of the Ukraine. And in it, he does ask for a couple of things from the Ukrainian president, the newly elected uh, uh, Ukrainian leader. And he wants uh, them to investigate the 2016 election uh, meddling supposedly uh, of of uh, the Democrats and Ukraine in in that election, and he you know they, there's some conspiracy theory they might have that Democratic server. I mean, it's conspiracy theory stuff. I don't think the intelligence agencies ever said Ukraine was meddling in our election, but the the main thing that caused consternation. With Nancy and the Democrats, as he also asked for information of the Bidens, including Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, uh, and he asked actually that they might investigate, yeah, uh, what happened because he Hunter Biden was a member of Burisma or something, which right. was a uh, so he was Ukrainian. making he was making money right. in the Ukraine, right? Basically off of his name, his old sure. man, his old man was vice president. He goes to the Ukraine, makes a buttload of money doing that. And now Trump wants the Ukraine to investigate this uh, to make sure there was no wrongdoing. And well, yeah, and and also to to get some dirt on Biden, exactly. who in all the polls is beating him in general election. So let's just stop it right there. So this we know is true. I mean, this is without a doubt that Biden got a lot of money working Hunter in the, Biden. Hunter Biden got a lot of money working in Ukraine. What we know for a fact also is that Trump asked President Zelensky to investigate that to for for um for corruption right. and that his state of his his department the attorney general was to call uh the Ukraine to sort of coordinate an investigation. Right. That's, and also even even in that conversation he's talking about aid because the idea becomes 
did he threaten to withhold aid to the Ukraine? They were given military aid because they are being basically invaded by Russia. I mean, Russia's already taken part of the Ukraine and the Crimea. And we had authorized, I believe, $400 million worth of military aid to them, especially anti-tank missiles. And in that conversation that that Trump released, it's not really a transcript, but it's a that's, transcript slash summary of the that's conversation. That's a really great point to make. But though. even in that, he says they're talking about in the context of providing this aid. They, he goes, well, "We need a favor, though." That's what he says. We need a favor, though. And then he talks about investigating the 2016 election and investigating the Bidens, and and so it looks like what they call a quid pro quo which would certainly be an abuse of power. Subsequent people who have come and testified, um, including a, a military a lieutenant colonel who was on that conversation, Vindman, I think his name is, he's confirmed that and confirmed that it was as concerning uh, to him. So, um, you know, the... We can talk about the politics of it. I think we, we've already talked about, like, you know, uh, impeachment's supposed to be high crimes, treason, bribery, high crimes, and misdemeanors. Well, I don't know if this is treason. It's certainly not treason because that's in a time of war. Is it bribery? I always look at bribery as like you took a bribe. Right. Is, is this bribing somebody else? I never thought this is a bribe. No, I didn't either. But is it a high crimes and misdemeanor? And, you know, so I, I went back, like I always do, look back and— you know, what the heck did our founders say about this stuff? And, uh, you know, what uh, Hamilton said in the main Federalist paper on this, which is Federalist 65, is that uh, uh, the jurisdiction of impeachment should be, are those which proceed from the conduct of public men from the abuse or violation of some public trust. So... That's different than high crimes and misdemeanors. This is fleshing out what are high crimes and misdemeanors. So what the Democrats are saying is when you ask for an investigation of a foreign leader of a uh, for dirt on your political rival or potential political rival, that's an abuse of power. I and mean, if you threaten to withhold aid or you are withholding aid, that's an abuse of power. And, and Hamilton goes on to say that these uh, – these, um, uh, problems, these conflicts that impeachment will uh, involve are political, and he spells that in the in the, uh, you know the typeface, and because the Federalist Papers were articles and printed in papers, political is all capital letters. So he's not saying this is a legal proceeding. He goes on to say that impeachment will seldom fail to agitate the passions of the whole community. In many cases, it will connect itself with pre-existing factions. In such cases. There was always the greatest danger that the decision will be regulated more by the comparative strength of the parties. So what this means is our founders are really smart people. He read it. (laughs) Basically, that summary is summing up exactly what impeachment has turned into. Um, We can talk about failed impeachments. And Jeff and I were talking earlier and probably the only slam dunk of how the system would have worked to perfectly would have been Nixon. Uh, Nixon committed clear crimes. He was going to be impeached very quickly by both. They had uh, evidence. They had tapes. Right. And so both Republicans and Democrats were going to impeach him, and he was going to be removed. And he resigned, and he never even got to impeachment. Now we look at Trump, and we also look at uh, Bill Clinton of recent years. It it is political. Um, One side is claiming something, and then even if you you believe something's impeachable or not, like whether you believe Trump should be impeached, 
or not. This is a political thing. This is a political tool um, used to curb the power and maybe remove from office the president of the United States. Um, and, and it should be. That's all. You know, I went back and looked at the Constitution because somebody asked me the question is um, could could Trump pardon himself? So I, I look back in the wording of the Constitution and in Article 2, it says no pardons or reprieves in impeachment cases. So Trump can't pardon himself. And so what and it also says what impeachment, uh, what wh- how much uh, authority does impeachment have? And it says shall not extend further than removal from office. Okay. So if someone is con- impeached and convicted in the sen- in the Senate, there's no criminal penalties. You can't put anybody in jail. Uh, you can't fine them. But they're immediately removed from office. And this has never been done before. So people are like, well, curious. Like, what if Trump, he won't, he won't be convicted. But if he was, what would happen? As soon as the Senate voted, he wouldn't be president anymore. No. Then Pence would take over. Yeah. Um, to me, this is a clear abuse of power. Um now, take the, the the I'm holding money back for you for the Ukraine um, because he never said like, hey, you you, you uh, investigate Hunter Biden for us. We're going to give you this money. Um, certainly when you read the transcript slash summary, the implication there is very clear. Right. But even the idea that you are asking a foreign government to investigate the son of a political rival, so you're only doing it for political purposes, is monumentally inappropriate and a monumental abuse of power. Now, whether it rises rises to the level of impeachment, that's a question for the House representatives, and clearly it is going to rise to the level of impeachment. And and, and you got to remember, no uh, political party has ever impeached a member of their same political party. Right. So we look at the history. Andrew Johnson, Democrat, impeached by Republicans. Uh, Bill Clinton, Democrat, impeached by Republicans. Richard Nixon, Republican, going to be impeached by a Democratic Congress. And now we have Trump, a Republican, going to be uh, impeached by a Democratic House of Representatives. Hamilton was right. It's political. And you made a good point before we started recording that this idea of foreign influence in the United States and in our political process, this is not something that was just born in the 21st century. This was at the core, to some degree, at the running of the Constitution. The founders were very concerned with foreign influences. And if you can find it in the requirements to be president of the United States, you have to be at least 35 years of age, which today would be extremely young. Um, you have to be a resident of 14 years in the United States. But the kicker here is you have to be a natural born citizen, um, which limits who can be president of the United States. And the reason why that was put in there is because they were afraid of foreign influence, of somebody, a foreigner coming in and being elected president. And you could take us even one step further and talk about gifts of wealth, uh, uh, titles of nobility. So you want to hit that clause a little bit. Well, yeah, there's a emoluments clause, which basically says that, you know, you can't take anything from foreign governments of value. They they don't want, you know, uh, and again, that would be a way for a foreign government at the time to curry favor. And they include in titles of nobility. So you can't be, you know, Sir Thomas Jefferson, like Mm -hmm. the English can't do that. And they would, they were afraid that this is a way that, the, the foreign governments could curry favor and influence people. So there is this idea 
uh, in the Constitution uh, right from the beginning of, you know, we have to make sure our leaders are loyal and, uh, you know, hovering in the background of all this, of course, is the 2016 election. And, you know, the, the Mueller report um, uh, didn't result in any, um, uh, uh, you know, criminal charges against Trump. But uh, there's no doubt, you know, even before that the Trump campaign sought out Russian help. I mean, that's what the meeting in Trump Towers was about. I mean, they had the email from Trump's son saying, you know, if you've got something, we'd love to, you know, right. paraphrasing. And um, we know that the intelligence agencies fill all 50 state election systems uh, were targeted by Russian hackers. So we, you know, and Trump initially denied Russians having anything to do with this. So I think this is this is an interesting thing. And in part, it, it, the Democrats are worried about another uh, interference. Now, you know, Hillary blames that interference maybe more than she should. That's why she lost the election. That's an easier thing than saying I never went to Wisconsin because right. I ran a bad campaign. But it is true that there are Russian bots. We now know that on Facebook and, and other places. And, and, you know, they tried to ex- exacerbate the differences between Americans. And they succeeded. And, and they, they succeeded. So what the Democrats might be doing here, I think they know they don't have a conviction. It takes two-thirds of the Senate to convict, 67 senators. The majority of senators are Republicans. So that's a high bar. So – you know, a lot of people question the wisdom of the Democrats, but maybe they're shooting uh, a little, you know, uh, a gun across the bow of of the Trump Trump administration, saying we're really going to call attention to this idea that you're working with foreign governments to affect the election. So it won't happen this time. Right. That that makes the most sense to me. And uh, so, what about what do you think? I think that makes the most sense. I think Nancy Pelosi is too political savvy to again politically savvy to uh, do something she doesn't know the answers to already. And I think this is a very narrow investigation, unlike the Mueller report that seemed to octopus out and tentacle out to a whole bunch of other issues. I think Nancy Pelosi is trying to put cattle shoots on this thing and keep it going straight on a very narrow basis, looking into the Ukraine and possible foreign influences. So I think it's going to work. Um, I think politically, I think she will, it will work. It will hurt Trump in the long run. Um, it's going to force him to answer this question again and again and again and again through the whole campaign. So at the very least, what she's going to do is she's going to be able to take him off of his talking points and he is going to have to keep defending himself when he probably wants to be talking about the economy, probably wants to be talking about taxes and things like that, which should guarantee his reelection, but this is going to change the focus. And now the focus is going to be on intervention from foreign governments and his part in fostering that, or at least not preventing it. All right. I found one more quote by a founder. Uh, This is uh, Ben Franklin's quote. And he said impeachment was uh, preferable to the traditional way of removing a European monarch, which was to kill them, which uh, (laughs) I thought was was pretty funny. So, you know, thank God our founders had a sense of humor. We need that all the time now.
All right. All right. Are we getting the secrets of the Constitution? We're going to get into the secrets of the Constitution, and I'm going to bring one up. I'm going to start off, and this is the Commerce Clause, uh, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3. All right. The Commerce Clause reads, to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among several states and with the Indian tribes. Uh, 16 words. Uh, no big words in there. And that's a power given to Congress, right? Power given no, to Congress. Article 1, right. And if we back up just a couple years before this, uh, under the Articles of Confederation, one of the major weaknesses of the f- articles was that government, the federal government couldn't control interstate commerce, and the economy was sort of grinding to a halt. So when they wrote the Constitution, very specifically, they wrote this power in to Congress to help control commerce. Now, so if you're going to have tariffs, they're going to have to be national tariffs, they're right? Going to, and uh, and uh, so that's that's something uh, they they wanted the economy to grow, and they they and to do that, it would help to have unified regu- uh, regulations uh, and and how we deal with uh, commerce both in inside the state and with foreign nations, and we had. Um, tariffs between states were, to, you know, which, which hindered trade between the states. And we wanted to get rid of that. So we yeah. So when it was written, Madison actually, um, wrote a very, fairly broad interpretation of the commerce power and the commerce clause. It went to committee, uh, Wilson from Pennsylvania. I think he's going to be a Supreme Court justice. We'll work with that clause and get it down to those 16 words, try to tighten it up and make it a little less abusable, so to speak. Okay. And commerce back in the 1700s was, it is what it's trade. Commerce is trading between states and the federal government has the purview to regulate trade between the states. Um, the first case for the expansion, now we talk about the secrets of the constitution. Maybe I should start from the very beginning. Why is the, I, I know the commerce clauses in the constitution. Why is this a secret of the constitution? Because this is the, the, the door that opens up that gives the federal government huge powers. Almost anything, like how in the world does a government, the federal government have the, re, re, the ability to do that? The Commerce Clause. The Commerce Clause has been interpreted so openly that really the federal government can, all, it seems can do almost anything and claim it to be part of the Commerce Clause. The Commerce Clause first comes up in 1824 with a case called Gibbons versus Ogden. All right. Um, we talked about this Supreme Court case before, but just a quick refresher. Um, the state of New York issued a monopoly to Gibbons to run a ferry boat back and forth between New York and New Jersey. Ogden says, no, I want to do that too. And the state of New York says, sorry, we already, we already gave it to the other guy. And there's only one going to be there. So, um, Eventually makes its way. I think Ogden's the guy with a monopoly, right? Skibbins versus Ogden. Isn't I thought Ogden was the one who wanted to start the thing, was it? Anyway, all right. One starts and one wants to compete. Right. right. Um, the it goes to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says, "Yeah, he can do that." Sorry, New York. This is movement between states. Right. You don't have the right. Hudson River goes between New York and New Jersey. Right. Interstate commerce moves between states. So this is an opening of a door to allow power. Because in this, um, John Marshall basically used the word substantial effect on the economy. If if an action has a substantial effect on the economy, then it falls into the, it, it can fall into the purview of the federal government. Um, the huge case that really expands it is Wilkert versus Filbur. 
You familiar with this case? No, I'm not. All right. Well, this is 1938, the Agricultural Adjustment Act. You're familiar with the yes. – Okay. So the Agricultural Adjustment Act was a New Deal policy. And basically during the New Deal, farmers were overproducing way, way too much. It was driving down prices and farmers weren't making enough money to pay their costs. So the Agricultural Adjustment Act basically went they around – lose and, their homes and you'd end up with grapes of wrath. There exactly. So the, all, the government, the federal government went around and basically created quotas and said, you can only grow so much of this. You can only right. grow so much of that. Right. Well, um, a farmer grew 12 acres of wheat. And when the inspector showed up, there's like, wait, this isn't – you weren't allotted this 12 acres of wheat. We're limiting this. He's like, well, no, don't worry. This 12 acres is never going to leave my farm. It's going to feed my family. I'm going to use some of the seed for next year to plant more wheat. And the rest of it is going to go feed my cattle. Um they said, sorry, you're still in violation of the Agricultural Adjustment Act. Um, you're fine. And he's like, I didn't – I'm not even participating in commerce here. Right. Like this is never – No trade whatsoever. No trade whatsoever. Not even with my neighbor. Went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, what if everyone were to grow their own wheat? If everyone grows their own wheat, then there's no wheat trade. So the fact that you're growing your wheat on your property for yourself is substantially affecting the interstate trade of wheat. So therefore, you can't do it. So even the guy who chose not to participate in interstate commerce is controlled by interstate commerce. I think I'm libertarian enough not to like that decision. That, that's a crazy decision, yeah. right? That's a crazy decision. And that opens up this huge plethora of what the, what the government can do. Basically, if there's any hint of interstate commerce, the government can regulate it. From 1937 to 1995, not a single piece of legislation was struck down by the Supreme Court because of interstate commerce. All right. So then in, 90, in 1995, the, the federal government passed the federal Gun-Free School Zones Act, which you can't have a gun within 100 feet of schools across the nation, all right? And even Texas had their own law that you can't have a gun within 100, 100 feet of a school. Everyone thought that was a good law. Right. But how in the world does the federal government have the power to pass that law? Went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court actually rolled back part of the Commerce Clause and said, wait, there's no – we can't link this to commerce. Right. Um, so I'm sorry. This act is unconstitutional. So if you were a strict constructionist of the Constitution, this was a victory for you. The, the 1938 decision was a blow to the heart because the federal government just gets so much power. Now in 1995, maybe we're starting to roll back interstate commerce. Then 2005 happens, and there's another case coming out of California where a person is growing their own marijuana for personal use, medical use, which is completely legal within the state of California. However – Should be legal everywhere. Absolutely. So California, though, this is violating federal law, and the federal government gets involved in this. It should have been to purview the state, but it's not. The federal government comes in and says, we know that you are – Growing marijuana, which is illegal, by the way, in the federal government, um, and you're growing it for your own use. However, just like in the Filborn case of 1938, because you're growing your own, you are now substantially affecting interstate commerce. Now the federal government can come in and stop you from doing that. That's crazy. So the government can even when what you, did the Supreme Court say about that? Supreme, that's what the Supreme Court said. Oh, they said you could do it. You, you, the federal government has the right to come in and regulate this. Yeah. 
See, I'm I'm too libertarian. For yeah, that. I'm like, get your hands off my wheat and my pot. How in the world can not participating in something? You you're participating in it. So at this point, no matter what you do, there is something connected to interstate commerce. The clothes you're wearing, right, came from another part of the state. So even use this logic in the Civil Rights Act, right? If a, a, a bar in Mississippi refuses to serve black people, that's a violation of the Civil Rights Act. Well, you have the famous case, the Heart of Atlanta uh, Motel versus the United States. And what that was uh, was – uh, was a decision based on the justified by interstate commerce clause, which in turn had justified the Civil Rights Act. The federal government had the the, the heart of Atlanta Motel was segregated. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, no, you know, we're not going to allow blacks, or if they do, they're going to be in a separate place. And so they were taken to court, and the heart of Atlanta Motel was found in violation of the Civil Rights Act, and the Civil Rights Act was found valid interstate commerce. Heart of Atlanta Motel, uh, even though, guess where it was, all right? Uh, they advertised. They advertised in other states. It's interstate commerce. So you can't, you know, the federal government has a right to regulate you. Now, at least that makes little sense to right. me because they're advertising in other states. But yeah, but their food comes from other states? Oh, Probably oh, utensils oh, come oh, from it, other states? It, it goes on, and if you look at the... Uh, of the um, huge uh, increase in the size of the federal government. I think the very first regulatory agency was the Interstate Commerce Commission. Right. And our very first big national uh, transportation networks uh, were the railroads. And the railroads were free to kind of charge what they want. Sometimes they would stiff farmer farmers or dependent upon railroads are getting their crops and their animals to market at a certain time. The railroads could gouge for prices and you had, you know, the Grange was upset about this. But they, the, the first uh, regulatory uh, commission that I know was the Interstate Commerce Commission. And they could, they said, well, you can't do that. We can, we're going to make sure you don't gouge farmers. We're going to set regulations on the railroad. And now, if you think about that, we have the FF, you know, the uh, Federal uh, Aviation Administration, right. FAA. We have the FCC, yep. the Federal Communications Commission, which, you know, and, and they had regulations about radio because now you have radio. Radio, you know, the radio waves don't stop at the state line. Television doesn't either. Certainly, Internet doesn't either. All of those, because of the Interstate Commerce Clause, can be regulated by Congress. By Congress, they right. can they can pass laws. Uh, the federal government can create a commission, and they can set uh, regulations. And you got to follow them. That's that's the way it is. Yeah. So if, if you think about just where you're sitting right now, and look around, how many how many things that, you, that are around you have some ingredient, some part of it that comes from another state? Look at your mattress label right. as a federal right. <laughs> label. It's interstate on. commerce. Yeah, it's interstate commerce. So then, with Obamacare, the people who are upset with the Commerce Clause and how much it's, quote-unquote, being abused to their uh, position, Obamacare offered an opportunity to roll back the Commerce Clause because what the Obamacare mandate was forcing you into economic activity, right? So you had to buy insurance or suffer a fine. Yeah. So how can the federal government force me into interstate commerce? Because 
If I choose not to participate, then I choose not to participate. And if I choose not to participate, then I'm not in the purview of the federal government to tell me. Well, as we just pointed out, the government can force economic transactions. Uh, the civil rights is a great example of this. If you're not serving black people in Mississippi in a bar, the federal government come in and say, you have to serve them. So they are forcing you into a transaction by because of the Commerce Clause. Um, so it's a, the Commerce Clause is this little, for most Americans, this little known clause of Article One. And what you really need to know about the Commerce Clause is that the Commerce Clause is the door, is the window, however you want to say it, that opens up to huge, immense government powers. Your car has an airbag. Yep, that's the commerce clause. I mean, we could go on and on and on about right. things that, you know, you you your sheets might be non-flammable because of the commerce clause. There's all, there's just all sorts of, you know, and, and as as we've become more interdependent as the nation grew, it was natural that that authority became mean to more and more and more and more and and that's what we've got and that's what we got so that's the secret of the constitution that i think a lot of people don't know uh, is how much power the federal government has and where that power is located and how it came about so we're sitting at 32 minutes i know you have a few do, I, I do got, you have a short one we could I got, do i got a short one right, we'll, we'll finish up with this short one well, then we'll, we'll come back next week one of the the interesting things uh the, and something that's so much different about our federal government than at the start of it is how much money we spend on the military yes uh our founding fathers were almost all fearful of a large standing army uh, it was criticized for taking too much money and also being a threat to liberty. Everybody right. was afraid that the chief executive, uh, who was the commander in chief, might use that somehow to take away people's liberty. In fact, I, you know, I'm reading uh, about this big biography of Grant, and during Andrew Johnson's administration, there was some fear uh, uh, that Andrew Johnson might use the army. To if he was actually impeached and convicted in oh, the really? Senate, yeah, I didn't know some, that. Some fear, uh, but Grant had become increasingly sympathetic. Grant, at that time, of course, he wasn't the president, but he had he had be, he had was general of the armies and had become increasingly sympathetic to the radical Republicans, just because he was very sympathetic to the idea of the rights of the freedmen, and he become a, an enemy of Johnson. So there wasn't much likelihood that that was going to happen. But that was a fear that was bandied about at the time. Nobody knew because right. that was the very first impeachment that there was, Andrew, Andrew Johnson. But um, this idea of the military, it was actually debated in the Constitutional Convention. And Elbridge Jerry, uh, which you guys might know from the term gerrymandering, um, he proposed an amendment to limit the size of the not, – not an amendment, actually, to be part of the Constitution. He proposed uh, to limit the size of the army, and, and evidently it was written in the such – he put a blank in there, and he thought that, you know, so the army should be limited to a blank thousand, and he thought it should be two or three thousand. And, you know, and, and there was a lot of – most people didn't want a large standing army. And, of course, Washington came – he invaded on this, I mean, being a general during the Revolution. He said, well, yeah, I mean, uh, we might can, – can we also limit the size of the invading army we might face to that? And it kind of sarcastically shot down that part of the Constitution and that never became, which, uh, you know, but we – but still, the idea that the, the, the founders had no idea that – 
uh, the majority of our discretionary budget each year would be spent on the military. That's something they couldn't have no, fathomed. And so just like you're talking about the power of the interstate commerce clause, uh, you know, we didn't agree to limit the size of a standing army. But after World War One, especially after World War Two, the what Eisenhower called the military industrial complex just ballooned and, and assumed a proportion that our founders could have never fathomed. No, yeah, we're, we're sitting in with commerce and for the military in places the founders would not have envisioned. So there we go. Uh, we had a little bit of on impeachment, a little bit of the secrets of the Constitution. Uh, we're going to come back next week uh, and put out some new more secrets, uh, some dealing with religion, some dealing with the president collecting gifts. Um, until next week, uh, go out and get yourself a Hershey's Yingling Stout if you've not already paused this podcast and run out to do that because that's what you should do. So we'll see you next week. Bye.